0: Section 5 of American Notes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bob Srigley, Charlottesville, Virginia. American Notes by Charles Dickens. Chapter 3, Part 3. To an Englishman accustomed to the paraphernalia of Westminster Hall, an American court of law is as odd a sight as i suppose an english court of law would be to an american except in the supreme court at washington where judges wear a plain black robe there is no such thing as a wig or gown connected with the administration of justice the gentlemen of the bar being barristers and attorneys too for there is no division of those functions as in England, are no more removed from their clients than attorneys in our court for the relief of insolvent debtors are from theirs. The jury are quite at home and make themselves as comfortable as circumstances will permit. The witness is so little elevated above or put aloof from the crowd in the court that a stranger, entering during a pause in the proceedings, would find it difficult to pick him out from the rest and if it chanced to be a criminal trial his eyes in nine cases out of ten would wander to the dock in search of the prisoner in vain for that gentleman would most likely be lounging among the most distinguished ornaments of the legal profession whispering suggestions in his counsel's ear or making a toothpick out of an old quill with his penknife i could not but notice these differences when i visited the courts at boston i was much surprised at first too to observe that the counsel who interrogated the witness under examination at the time did so sitting but seeing that he was also occupied in writing down the answers and remembering that he was alone and had no junior i quickly consoled myself with the reflection that law was not quite so expensive an article here as at home and that the absence of sundry formalities which we regard as indispensable had doubtless a very favorable influence on the bill of cost in every court ample and commodious provision is made for the accommodation of the citizens this is the case all through america in every public institution the right of the people to attend and to have an interest in the proceedings is most fully and distinctly recognized. There are no grim doorkeepers to dole out their tardy civility by the sixpenny worth, nor is there, I sincerely believe, any insolence of office of any kind. Nothing national is exhibited for money, and no public officer is a showman we have begun of late years to imitate this good example i hope we shall continue to do so and that in the fulness of time even deans and chapters may be converted in the civil court an action was trying for damages sustained in some accident upon a railway the witnesses had been examined and counsel was addressing the jury The learned gentleman, like a few of his English brethren, was desperately long-winded, and had a remarkable capacity of saying the same thing over and over again. His great theme was, Warren the engine-driver, whom he pressed into the service of every sentence he uttered. I listened to him for about a quarter of an hour, and, coming out of court at the expiration of that time, without the faintest ray of enlightenment as to the merits of the case— Felt as if I were at home again. In the prisoner's cell waiting to be examined by the magistrate on a charge of theft was a boy. This lad, instead of being committed to a common jail, would be sent to the asylum at South Boston and there taught a trade, and in the course of time he would be bound apprentice to some respectable master. Thus his detection in this offence, instead of being a prelude to a life of infamy, and a miserable death, would lead, there was a reasonable hope, to his being reclaimed from vice and becoming a worthy member of society. I am by no means a wholesale admirer of our legal solemnities, many of which impress me as being exceedingly ludicrous. Strange as it may seem, too, there is undoubtedly a degree of protection in the wig and gown, a dismissal of individual responsibility in dressing for the part which encourages that insolent bearing and language and that gross perversion of the office of a pleader for the truth so frequent in our courts of law still i cannot help doubting whether america in her desire to shake off the absurdities and abuses of the old system may not have gone too far into the opposite extreme and whether it is not desirable especially in the small community of a city like this where each man knows the other to surround the administration of justice with some artificial barriers against the hail fellow well met deportment of everyday life all the aid it can have in the very high character and ability of the bench not only here but elsewhere it has and well deserves to have but it may need something more not to impress the thoughtful and the well-informed but the ignorant and heedless a class which includes some prisoners and many witnesses these institutions were established no doubt upon the principle that those who had so large a share in making the laws would certainly respect them but experience has proved this hope to be fallacious for no men know better than the judges of america THAT ON THE OCCASION OF ANY GREAT POPULAR EXCITEMENT, THE LAW IS POWERLESS, AND CANNOT FOR THE TIME ASSERT ITS OWN SUPREMACY. THE TONE OF SOCIETY IN BOSTON IS ONE OF PERFECT POLITENESS, COURTESY, AND GOOD BREEDING. THE LADIES ARE UNQUESTIONABLY VERY BEAUTIFUL IN FACE, BUT THERE I AM COMPELLED TO STOP. THEIR EDUCATION IS MUCH AS WITH US, NEITHER BETTER NOR WORSE. I had heard some very marvelous stories in this respect, but not believing them was not disappointed. Blue ladies there are in Boston, but like philosophers of that color and sex in most other latitudes, they rather desire to be thought-superior than to be so. Evangelical ladies there are, likewise, whose attachment to the forms of religion and horror of theatrical entertainments are most exemplary. Ladies who have a passion for attending lectures are to be found among all classes and all conditions. In the kind of provincial life which prevails in cities such as this, the pulpit has great influence. The peculiar province of the pulpit in New England, always accepting the Unitarian ministry, would appear to be the denouncement of all innocent and rational amusements. The church, the chapel, and the lecture-room are the only means of excitement accepted, and to the church, the chapel, and the lecture-room, the ladies resort in crowds. Wherever religion is resorted to as a strong drink, and as an escape from the dull, monotonous round of home, those of its ministers who pepper the highest will be the surest to please.' they who strew the eternal path with the greatest amount of brimstone, and who most ruthlessly tread down the flowers and leaves that grow by the wayside, will be voted the most righteous, and they who enlarge with the greatest pertinacity on the difficulty of getting into heaven, will be considered by all true believers certain of going there, though it would be hard to say by what process of reasoning this conclusion is arrived at. It is so at home, and it is so abroad. With regard to the other means of excitement, the lecture, it has at least the merit of being always new. One lecture treads so quickly on the heels of another that none are remembered, and the course of this month may be safely repeated next, with its charm of novelty unbroken, and its interest unabated." The fruits of the earth have their growth and corruption. Out of the rottenness of these things there has sprung up in Boston a sect of philosophers known as Transcendentalists. On inquiring what this appellation might be supposed to signify, I was given to understand that whatever was unintelligible would be certainly transcendental not deriving much comfort from this elucidation i pursued the inquiry still further and found that the transcendentalists are followers of my friend mr carlyle or i should rather say of a follower of his mr ralph waldo emerson this gentleman has written a volume of essays in which among much that is dreamy and fanciful if he will pardon me for saying so there is much more that is true and manly honest and bold transcendentalism has its occasional vagaries what school has not but it has good healthful qualities in spite of them not least among the number a hearty disgust of cant and an aptitude to detect her in all the million varieties of her everlasting wardrobe and therefore if i were a bostonian i think i would be a transcendentalist the only preacher i heard in boston was mr taylor who addresses himself peculiarly to seamen and who was once a mariner himself i found his chapel down among the shipping in one of the narrow old waterside streets with a gay blue flag waving freely from its roof in the gallery opposite to the pulpit were a little choir of male and female singers a violoncello and a violin the preacher already sat in the pulpit which was raised on pillars and ornamented behind him with painted drapery of a lively and somewhat theatrical appearance. He looked a weather-beaten, hard-featured man, of about six or eight and fifty, with deep lines graven, as it were, into his face, dark hair, and a stern, keen eye. Yet the general character of his countenance was pleasant and agreeable. The service commenced with a hymn, to which succeeded an extemporary prayer— it had the fault of frequent repetition incidental to all such prayers but it was plain and comprehensive in its doctrines and breathed a tone of general sympathy and charity which is not so commonly a characteristic of this form of address to the deity as it might be that done he opened his discourse taking for his text a passage from the song of solomon laid upon the desk before the commencement of the service by some unknown member of the congregation "'Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on the arm of her beloved?' He handled his text in all kinds of ways and twisted it into all manner of shapes, but always ingeniously, and with a rude eloquence well adapted to the comprehension of his hearers. Indeed, if I be not mistaken, he studied their sympathies and understandings much more than the display of his own powers.' His imagery was all drawn from the sea, and from the incidents of a seaman's life, and was often remarkably good. He spoke to them of that glorious man Lord Nelson, and of Collingwood, and drew nothing in, as the saying is, by the head and shoulders, but brought it to bear upon his purpose naturally, and with a sharp mind to its effect sometimes when much excited with his subject he had an odd way compounded of john bunyan and balfour of Burley, of taking his great quarto bible under his arm and pacing up and down the pulpit with it looking steadily down meantime into the midst of the congregation Thus, when he applied his text to the first assemblage of his hearers, and pictured the wonder of the church at their presumption in forming a congregation among themselves, he stopped short with his Bible under his arm, in the manner I have described, and pursued his discourse after this manner. "'Who are these? Who are they? Who are these fellows? Where do they come from? Where are they going to? Come from? What's the answer?' "'leaning out from the pulpit and pointing downward with his right hand. "'From below.' "'Starting back again and looking at the sailors before him. "'From below, my brethren, from under the hatches of sin, "'battened down above you by the evil one. "'That's where you came from.' "'A walk up and down the pulpit. "'And where are you going?' "'Stopping abruptly. "'Where are you going?' "'Aloft.' "'Very softly and pointing upward.' aloft louder aloft louder still that's where you are going with a fair wind all taut and trim steering direct for heaven in its glory where there are no storms or foul weather and where the wicked cease from troubling and the weary are at rest another walk that's where you're going to my friends that's it that's the place That's the port, that's the haven, it's a blessed harbour, still water there, in all changes of the winds and tides, no driving ashore upon the rocks, or slipping your cables and running out to sea. There, peace, 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 all peace. Another walk, and patting the Bible under his left arm. What? These fellows are coming from the wilderness, are they? Yes, from the dreary, blighted wilderness of iniquity, whose only crop is death. But do they lean upon anything? Do they lean upon nothing, these poor seamen? Three raps upon the Bible? Oh, yes, yes, they lean upon the arm of their beloved. Three more raps? Upon the arm of their beloved? Three more, and a walk? Pilot, guiding star and compass, all in one— to all hands here it is three more here it is they can do their seamen's duty manfully and be easy in their minds in the utmost peril and danger with this two more they can come even these poor fellows can come from the wilderness leaning on the arm of their beloved and go up 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 raising his hand higher and higher at every repetition of the word so that he stood with it at last stretched above his head regarding them in a strange rapt manner and pressing the book triumphantly to his breast until he gradually subsided into some other portion of his discourse i have cited this rather as an instance of the preacher's eccentricities than his merits though taken in connection with his look and manner and the character of his audience even this was striking it is possible however that my favourable impression of him may have been greatly influenced and strengthened firstly by his impressing upon his hearers that the true observance of religion was not inconsistent with a cheerful deportment and an exact discharge of the duties of their station which indeed it scrupulously required of them and secondly by his cautioning them not to set up any monopoly in paradise and its mercies i never heard these two points so wisely touched if indeed I have ever heard them touched at all by any preacher of that kind before. Having passed the time I spent in Boston in making myself acquainted with these things, in settling the course I should take in my future travels, and in mixing constantly with its society, I am not aware that I have any occasion to prolong this chapter. Such of its social customs as I have not mentioned, however, may be told in a very few words. The usual dinner hour is two o'clock, a dinner-party takes place at five, and at an evening party they seldom sup later than eleven, so that it goes hard but one gets home even from a rout by midnight. I never could find out any difference between a party at Boston and a party in London, saving that at, in the former place all assemblies are held at more rational hours, that the conversation may possibly be a little louder and more cheerful, and a guest is usually expected to ascend to the very top of the house to take his cloak off that he is certain to see at every dinner an unusual amount of poultry on the table and at every supper at least two mighty bowls of hot stewed oysters in any one of which a half-grown duke of clarence might be smothered easily There are two theatres in Boston of good size and construction, but sadly in want of patronage. The few ladies who resort to them sit, as of right, in the front rows of the boxes. The bar is a large room with a stone floor, and there people stand and smoke and lounge about all the evening, dropping in and out as the humour takes them. There, too, the stranger is initiated into the mysteries of gin sling, cocktail, sangaree, mint julep sherry cobbler timber doodle and other rare drinks the house is full of boarders both married and single many of whom sleep upon the premises and contract by the week for their board and lodging the charge for which diminishes as they go nearer the sky to roost a public table is laid in a very handsome hall for breakfast and for dinner and for supper the parties sitting down together to these meals will vary in number from one to two hundred sometimes more the advent of each of these epochs in the day is proclaimed by an awful gong which shakes the very window-frames as it reverberates through the house and horribly disturbs nervous foreigners there is an ordinary for ladies and an ordinary for gentlemen In our private room the cloth could not, for any earthly consideration, have been laid for dinner without a huge glass dish of cranberries in the middle of the table, and breakfast would have been no breakfast unless the principal dish were a deformed beefsteak with a great flat bone in the centre, swimming in hot butter, and sprinkled with the very blackest of all possible pepper our bedroom was spacious and airy but like every bedroom on this side of the atlantic very bare of furniture having no curtains to the french bedstead or to the window it had one unusual luxury however in the shape of a wardrobe of painted wood something smaller than an english watch-box or if this comparison should be insufficient to convey a just idea of its dimensions, they may be estimated from the fact of my having lived for fourteen days and nights in the firm belief that it was a shower-bath. End of Section 5, Chapter 3, Part 3, Reading by Bob Strigley, Charlottesville, Virginia, U.S.A.